You are listening to the podcast from Mosaic Church. Stay tuned afterward for more info about how to get and stay connected with our church family. Now, let's dive into this week's message. All right, there we are. Very good. Uh, if this is your first time here, as always, we sure hope it's not your last. My name is Morgan, the lead pastor here. I want to welcome you to Mosaic. Uh, back on January 7th, of 2015, January 7, 2015, some of you may remember this, in Paris, France, two Islamic terrorists burst into the headquarters of the satirical magazine publication called Charlie Hebdo. And the magazine had been printing articles, it had been printing images that were inflammatory, highly critical of the Muslim prophet Muhammad. And for this, they had received death threats uh, up to this moment on January 7th. The office there had already been firebombed, their website already hacked, the staff already threatened. But this day, January 7, 2015, the terrorists carried guns, broke in and shot and killed 12 people in the building, including the editor of the publication, Stéphane Charbonnier. His friends called him Charb. Uh, It was terrible. And while some of you may vaguely remember this, Carrie and I actually deeply recall this because we were there that day in Paris, not far from where it happened. We had been in Marseille, France, helping a friend's church, part of our Every Nation family, taking the train up to Paris for a couple of days of sightseeing uh, before returning home. And on that day, January 7th, we, we, we got out, we walked the streets, and we sensed something was off. We, we saw these SWAT teams assembling out there. We saw Paris police with dogs and machine guns. We knew something was happening, but didn't know what, and certainly didn't know that mass murder had taken place just a few blocks from where we were. Now, despite those threats made against him, Sharb, the editor of the magazine, he died for what he believed in. He was not at all a Christian, not at all a person of faith, but still he gave his life to defend something important and precious to him. That was his story. And as a matter of fact, In the wake of all of that, the French people went on to make Sharb's story their story. They created a phrase, a slogan, if you will, that captured how they all felt. It was this. They said, Je suis Charlie. I am Charlie. Je suis Charlie. And over the next few hours, that rallying cry began to spread all over town, uh, on buses, uh, in railway stations, uh, on benches, on walls, art rooms. And the next morning, I actually, Carrie and I went on the subway, and we filmed this random French subway vandal doing what random French subway vandals do, which was to spray paint graffiti. And here's a little video I took, and you can see what he's riding there. Oh, yes. making sure the police aren't coming. And the train comes and he goes. And there it is again. You can see it. Just sweet Charlie. I am Charlie. He's saying those people are me. Their story is my story. My story is their story. Those people are me. Now, I think there's something powerful in that random French subway vandals graffiti. It touches the very meaning, I think, of what it means not only to be human, but what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And I think then, if we can answer the question I'm about to ask, in light of all of this, it might just change us, maybe even for forever. So let's ask 
this question. Here it is. Whose story is your story? Whose story is your story? Uh, those French people, they, they saw the news. They felt the pain. They said those dead journalist story, Charlie Hebdo's story, Sharb's story is ours. That guy on the subway said their story is mine. So again, let me ask you, whose story is your story? Whose actions, choices, example defines, inspires, shapes who you are. Now, listen, I'm not asking what is your story, what your story is, although you certainly have that too. No, I'm asking you whose story is your story, and that's different. And the reason why I think this is such an important question to ask is because of this. Someone else's story is actually your story, whether you want it to be or not. Now, I didn't get any amens there, and here's why I know this. It's because in an individualistic culture like ours, that sounds either untrue, unpopular, or offensive. But I want to tell you, it's true. Listen, our individualistic culture isn't always right when it tells you that you and I, that we are entirely autonomous beings, making self-actualized choices in a free and autonomous manner, you know, independently, rationally. No. Our individualistic culture says also, for example, you can be whatever you want to be. You can become whatever you want to become. I don't care what your first grade teacher told you. That's not actually true. If that were true, I would be six foot five, 250 pounds, be 25 years old, and be playing Major League Baseball today. I wouldn't even be here with you. But I'm not that. As you can see, I'm five foot ten, 160 pounds, and 26 years old. So I'm here with you instead. All right, I'll be here all week. Sure, you make your own choices, but you also grow up in and are shaped by certain cultural forces, whether you want to be or not. Now, we call that unfair. The rest of the world calls that reality. Whose story is your story? Today, we're going to look at a particular passage in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, that offers us three choices of stories. And our passage, the narrative we're about to look at right now, is from the seventh book, is the seventh book of what we call the Bible. This is the book of Judges. Now, don't get nervous. The book of Judges isn't about a bunch of people who, you know, are black robes and white wigs and pound desks with gavels. That's not Judges. Judges, nor is it like, a, you know, a bunch of people who sit around TMZ style. Those are Judges too, you see. They're cultural Judges. It's true. Who criticize everybody. No, the word Judges is the Hebrew word shoftim, and it's better translated as rulers, chieftains, tribal heroes. They were a group of individuals that the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, raised up to rescue his people roughly 1200 BC. After their rescue from slavery in Egypt and before the rise of the monarchy and people like King David who wrote Carrie's Psalm. Yes. And so in this in-between space today, we come face to face with one of those leaders, rulers, judges, shof team. We've only got part of his narrative here, time for it, and his name is Gideon. But before we meet Gideon in Judges 6, we meet the first choice of story we might be tempted to adopt 
and allow it to define us. It's not Gideon's story. It's actually the story of Gideon's people, God's people, the Israelites. Here in Judges chapter 6, we're about to see that though God has given his people a special land, the land of Canaan, they have, in fact, forgotten him. They've forgotten him. Judges 6 verse 1 reads, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and for seven years he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Now, we're not told exactly what this specific evil was, but here in verse 1, because of this evil, overall evil, I suppose, God gave them over to a marauding band of nomadic people called the Midianites. Verse 2, because the power of Midian was so oppressive, the Israelites prepared shelters for themselves in mountain clefts, caves, and strongholds. So the Israelites, in fear, go into hiding to save their lives. Verse 3, whenever the Israelites planted their crops, the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples invaded the country. They camped on the land and ruined the crops all the way to Gaza and did not spare a living thing for Israel, neither sheep nor cattle nor donkeys. They came up with their livestock and their tents like swarms of locusts. It was impossible to count them or their camels. They invaded the land to ravage it. You've seen the Lord of the Rings. The Midianites are not unlike the orcs, yes, who come in, raid, pillage, plunder, take what they want, and ruin the land. But then, in verse 6, we're offered a narrative clue as to what is really happening behind the scenes. Verse 6 says this, Midian so impoverished the Israelites that they cried out to the Lord for help. This word here, impoverished, oh, it tells us everything we need to know about what's going on. This word impoverished in Hebrew means to be laid low, to be reduced, to look weak, to be made small. Now, I think this is incredible. This is saying that God's mighty people, the Israelites, who had grown so large, so strong, that when they came out of Egypt... And through the Red Sea, the very mention of them cast fear in the hearts of the peoples around them. The very mention of Israel, you can read it for yourself, caused people to surrender to them, caused them to want to join the nation of Israel. Now, Israel, the people once so large, who had status and influence and an honored name in their own land, have now been made small and hide in the hills. How? How do God's people, covenant promises, a covenant God, faithful, power, how do God's people end up there? How do God's people become small and weak and reduced? Over the last 25 years in these United States, you may have read this certainly in the news, 40 million people have stopped attending church. You've seen this, yes? This is something like 12% of the American population. Sociologists say it represents the largest change in church attendance in American history, even more significant than the Great Awakening. Now, while that is not good, thankfully you should know by God's grace, this has not been our story at Mosaic. Both pre- and post-pandemic, we have, by God's grace, and a lot of hard work from a lot of people, beating that curve by leaps and bounds time after time. I'm so thankful to be that and not just a statistic, okay? 
Glory to God, thanks to you. But this shift overall is not good for our nation because you should know that church attendance is actually a key predictor of things a culture really wants. Things like good health, longer life, yes, more investment financially in communities, more stable families. In other words, research shows church attendance can make you healthier, live longer, make communities and families better. I'm trying to get you to come back next week. Okay, all right. Now, it doesn't always, church attendance doesn't always, but it can and often does. Now, I'm not saying any church, let alone this one you're a part of, you're visiting is perfect. I'm just trying to honestly reflect back to you some impartial sociological observations. Research also coming now out of Harvard and Princeton show that kids who are involved with faith communities do better in school, have fewer mental health problems, and fewer behavioral issues in the classroom. This is all good. So with all of this potential even proven good, why has this shift in church attendance happened? Why have so many Americans walked away the Christian faith. Now, it's happened for a number of reasons. It is multifactorial for sure. How we handle issues of race, uh, bullying against LBGTQ plus communities, right? Not speaking up. Um, uh, uh, moral abuse, spiritual abuse from clergy. These things happen. But I want to give you one of the most commonly named ones, and I'll give it to you in the form of a thoughtful quote from a name that you may recognize, Pastor Andy Stanley from North Point Church in Atlanta, Georgia. And he wrote this article recently for Outreach Magazine. Here's what he had to say. It's a little longer, so hang in there. All right. He said, tough times expose tough truths. The political, social, economic, and health crises of 2020 revealed a disturbing reality about evangelicals in America. What we say is most important is not actually what we consider most important. For all our talk of revival and reaching the lost, our actions and reactions tell a different story. For a long time now, our words, thoughts, and values have not aligned with what we claim we're about. If there's any doubt, consider the reactions of prominent pastors, Christian podcasters, television personalities, and nonprofit leaders to the events that define 2020. Their reactions... Our reactions made what we most value abundantly and embarrassingly clear. Once you scratch the veneer off our Bible-laced rhetoric and faith claims, our sermons and songs, we value what everybody else does. Winning. What do we fear? Losing. But not winning or losing souls. I'm talking about how we systematically alienated people in America through our unchristlike rhetoric and fear-based posturing. And make no mistake, people were watching. They were listening. Folks who don't embrace our faith, the very folks we propose to quote-unquote save, found out what's most important to us. And it wasn't them. If it were, we would not have let ourselves be dragged into and embroiled in far less noble conflicts with far less noble goals. If evangelism and discipleship were truly most important, we would not have so easily surrendered influence with those outside the church. Here it is. We would not have permitted ourselves to be reduced to a voting block. Hear what he's saying. He's saying, of course, many Christians, Christian leaders, in the middle of all the crises, 
all the difficulty, stop being a people or a community that listened to the voice of God and started being a community that listened to the voices, in this instance, of political parties. And as the church of Jesus in this country has gotten more tightly affiliated with not politics, being with, involved with politics is crucial. Politicians make policies. Policies affect people. We must be salt and light, must be involved. But as the church of Jesus has become willingly identified with political parties, the church has been reduced Reduced to the degree the Christian church has been tied to political parties, to that degree the church has been impoverished. It has been diminished. It reflects a failure of imagination and faith. People list this as one of the main reasons they actually walk away from church. You know why? Here it is. It's because when outsiders come to a church, when your, hear me, when your non-Christian friend comes here, they want to know what the church is all about. They're asking, church, whose story is your story? Is the church's story the story of just American culture, of just a Democratic or Independent or Republican party, or Church of Jesus? is someone else's story. Please tell us someone else's story is your story. That's what our community wants to know. Not if we have a temporary, culturally isolated story, but if we have a greater, eternal, life-transforming hope from heaven itself. Oh, when God's people, see, listen, listen to the voice of culture and not to the voice of God, we become impoverished. And reduced. Look at what God tells his people. That's exactly what he tells them here in Judges 6, verse 7. When the Israelites cried out to the Lord because of Midian, he sent them a prophet who said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians, and I delivered you from the hand of all your oppressors. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. In other words, God didn't send them salvation. He sent them a sermon. <laughs> Right? And God concludes like this, but you have not listened to me. This is the reason for his judgment in this case. So let me ask you, who do you listen to? Podcasters, news channels nonstop. Are we listening to the Amorites, the Parasites, NBC Newsites, Drudge Reportites? The list goes on. I'm not trying to single anyone out. Or do we listen to God? Do we go to his word first and last? He is the alpha, come on, and omega. Don't you pity the church that only has a politician to protect them? I do. Don't let the Israelites' story become yours. Don't listen to trust in first the voice of popular culture. If you do, you'll always be impoverished. So is there a better option? Is there a better way? Is there another better story that can, in fact, become our own? And the answer is, thankfully, yes. There is a second story here, verse 11. Let's meet him. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash, the Abizarite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. Now, the angel of the Lord, we'll come back to him in a minute. He sits down next to someone, we're told his name, Gideon, who is threshing his wheat. Again, not out in the open where you thresh your wheat, but down in a wine press so as not to be seen. This is like milking your cow in the bathtub. You milk cows outside, 
Why would you ever milk one inside? Oh, it's because you're afraid. Gideon here, he's small, he's afraid, he's running his business in the shadows, he's trying to be as quiet as he can, not attract attention so our man can keep his wheat. And the angels of the Lord, oh, he just casually camps out under a tree. Hmm? And basically starts shouting down at Gideon in the wine press. Hey, buddy, what's going on? What you doing down there? The angels of the Lord, he's not anxious about the Midianites. He's not afraid of the peoples. In verse 12, and when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. This is such a comical image. Some commentators found, think God is mocking Gideon. (laughs) Basically, they're saying this is the equivalent, I made this part up, of God showing up at a Comic-Con, going into the back room, where Kevin from sales is waving around his plastic lightsaber he just bought out on the floor and saying to him, greetings, powerful Jedi. (laughs) Now, if you said that, you might be mocking Kevin from sales, but God is not mocking Gideon here, not at all. Instead, with his word, he's beginning to call Gideon up out of the story that's defined him and beginning to give Gideon a new story altogether. Gideon, of course, he can't comprehend what's happening. And he asks the angel of the Lord two really emotionally based questions. Verse 13, pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. Being nice, a guy appears out of nowhere, probably gonna do the same if it's you and me. But if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now, here it is, the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. To be fair to Gideon, aren't these the questions we ask when we suffer? Why am I hurting and where are you, God? By the way, you should notice this. This is very instructive. God doesn't give him a direct answer. Perhaps it's because Gideon kind of mischaracterized what was happening. Forgot the whole covenant with God, Israel, you know, thing, Gideon? Yes. Perhaps God knew there was no real way to reason with a guy who's so anxious he's threshing his wheat in a wine press. Or perhaps the answers were just too complex for Gideon to be able to hear. And certainly this can also be the case when we suffer. We can suffer for a variety of reasons. Things happening around us in our nation cause us to struggle. Palmer Lane fire, we'll talk about that before we're done. Sometimes our own family's challenges hmm, can cause us to suffer. Gideon's father, for example, was a Jew who worshiped idols. Gideon's father is kind of like, kind of like the dad who brought pornography into his own home and expected his kids not to find it or watch it. Hmm? I was with another man recently This is the past week, two weeks ago, who was also, again, exposed to porn through his father's collection. He suffered for decades because of it. That's all too common. That man suffered because of what his dad brought home. Perhaps Gideon was suffering because of what his dad brought home. Perhaps he's suffering because of what his nation was doing around him. The point is the reasons why we suffer can just be complex. And like Job, hmm? we may never find out why. Oh, but like, hear me, but like Job and like Gideon, we can know that even if we suffer because we have abandoned God or whether we suffer because of something someone else has brought into our life, either way, God has not and will never abandon us. He won't. God was with Israel. Even in her backsliding, 
God is with America, even in our struggles, and God is with all of us Gideons today. But regardless, God never tells Gideon why he's suffering, because in this moment, God ain't got time for all of that. (laughs) He's actually got a bigger purpose, again, to give Gideon a new story out of which to live. Verse 14, the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have. Again, once again, seems like an insult. And save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? Ahem, excuse me, pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied. But how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, tiny tribe, by the way, and I'm the least in my family. Lord, how can I make a difference in the world? I'm like last in my class from the sticks in Oatmeal, Texas. Yeah, I'm not from a big place, a rich family. How could I possibly make a difference? And God's about to tell him, he's gonna say once more, if you're asking that today, that's you, it's just evidence, again, you're listening to the wrong voices, the voices of your culture. Our culture say you can only make a difference if you're wealthy or if you're handsome or both or super talented or you get a legacy admission to a college in the right city, right? The voices of our culture say it's all about who you know. And to that, God says, hmm, you're right and you're wrong. But because it's not about if you know them, it's all about if you know me. Verse 16, the Lord answered, I will be with you, not the dean at Harvard, not the mayor, not the president, and you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. And you should know, though, we're not going to read it. Gideon does it. He actually becomes a mighty warrior. He goes on to defeat, though we're not going to read it in this chapter, an army of thousands with only 300 soldiers. He rids his land of idols, and he grows so popular that people try to make him Israel's first king, though he refuses it. The point is God was with Gideon, and he impacted his city, his culture, his nation, but only because he stopped listening to the voices around him in his culture and started listening to the Lord his God first, even at his lowest. Whose story is yours? Is it the story of the people of Israel or is it Gideon's story? Is it the story of a people who listens to other voices and grows impoverished, reduced? Or is it the story of Gideon who listened to the voice of the Lord his God and flourished and prospered, was victorious. The good news is, I'll tell you this, you get to pick, you get to pick, but you'll never be able to live like Gideon, be like Gideon, come out of your culture like Gideon, if you try to make Gideon's story alone your story. Because in the end, Gideon's story won't change your life. Oh, but someone else's story can and will. And his story is here in Gideon's as well. Here it is. When God tells Gideon in verse 16, I'll be with you. Gideon asks for a sign famously, for certainty, for proof. And by the way, God doesn't rebuke him for his questions and doubt. He doesn't. He doesn't correct him, doesn't reprove him for asking for proof. And so Gideon, therefore, he goes away and he did what people did then. He sacrifices a goat, he gets some bread, and he serves a meal to the angel of the Lord. Which brings up this, I think, fascinating question. Why would you serve a meal to a person without a body? If this is only a spiritual, ephemeral being, just 
an angel with no body, no stomach, why would you offer him food to eat? And the answer is, it's because it's not just an angel. It's the angel. The angel of the Lord is this sort of shadowy figure we see throughout the Hebrew scriptures. He comes in bodily form. He was touchable, approachable, ate food, regularly cooked for other people. Elijah, thank you. Most of all, he didn't say, thus saith the Lord, or God's told me some things I want to tell you. No, he says, I say, I say, oh, hang on, wait a minute. Who was touchable, approachable? Was God in a body and spoke as if he were? God, oh, this is, many Christians believe I do, this is Jesus Christ, what's called a Christophany, an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament, pre-incarnate. What happens next? Verse 20, the angel of the Lord said to him, okay, all right, take the meat, take the unleavened bread, place them on a rock, pour out the broth. Gideon does so. Then the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread with the tip of the staff. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and bread. And the angel of the Lord disappeared. In other words, a sacrifice is made. Fire comes out of the rock. The angel of the Lord goes into the fire and disappears. And Gideon, of course, he does what you and I would do. He freaks out. Why? Because fire's coming out of a rock. (laughs) Fire's a symbol of God's judgment. Fire, thunder, smoke, tokens of God's presence and holiness. And it always utterly consumed everything on the altar. No human could stand in the presence of God and live. And Gideon knows this. He's heard the stories. Verse 22, when Gideon realized, oh, it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, alas, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Oh, but now God from heaven says this, verse 23, peace, do not be afraid. You are not going to die. Let me ask you this. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? What is it? It is the good news that Jesus lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died to rescue us from death, hell, sin, Satan, the grave. He was sacrificed for us and by the power of his resurrection enables us to come into his kingdom and live a new life. Jesus tasted the fire we should have so that we could have peace with God. See, the gospel, Paul says in the New Testament, the gospel is the message of peace. And Gideon gets a foreshadowing of this. He saw the figure go into the fire, take the fire for him, and gets a word of peace spoken to his heart. And this seed of the gospel, this is what changed him. It gave him confidence. Hear me. Not confidence to bow up and get real big confidence to be small. It's why he whittled his followers down to just a few. He didn't need thousands. He didn't need to be big. He could be small and triumph, which is how God saves us, you know, not by a powerful warrior, but by a weak one. Many years later, Jesus Christ, the greater Gideon, ultimate Gideon came and he did the same. He didn't call an army though he could have. He wasn't trying to start a new nation. No, he called his 12 disciples and gave them what? Not a new nation, not a new land, a new kingdom, not of this world. Jesus became small, weak to the point of death and his death and resurrection prove we can trust him. When he asks us to trust him with our lives and our story. Whose story is yours? Hmm? 
Israel's will only fail you. Gideon's will only crush you. But Jesus's can and will save you. I wonder if you could say today, Jesus, would your story become mine today? Church, I hope you can say amen. Let me take a moment and pray for us. Lord, we come in Jesus' name and we thank you for this. Lord, the picture of the gospel all the way back. Of all places in Judges 6 with a, a weak warrior and, a, and a threshing wheat in a wine press. You come to him, you call him what he's not, tell him who he is. You give him a new song to sing. Jesus, I'm praying today for all of us, no matter where we're from, if we've allowed, like Israel, the voices of the cultures around us to become what we listen to and define us first, we'd simply say, I'm sorry, Lord. So him says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Oh, but here's my heart today. Would you take and seal it? Seal it for thy courts above. Lord, would you let the light and love of your word sanctify us, set us apart for your kingdom first. And I'm praying no person here would go home today without allowing your story to become theirs. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more info about how to get and stay connected to Mosaic Church, please visit us online at www.mosaicchurchaustin.com or download our app from your app store.